0: Hello and welcome to the BBC Gardeners' World magazine podcast, brought to you by the team here at the magazine. Join us as we chat all things gardening with the nation's favourite experts. Endless blooms, gorgeous pots and borders bursting with colour. Are you looking for ideas to make and keep your garden looking tip-top this summer? Hello, I'm Miranda, and I caught up with West Dean's head gardener, Tom Brown, and grilled him for his top tips and tricks. You're welcome. So you can grow like a pro this summer. I started by asking him how we can help our plants flower for longer.
1: I think, particularly with annuals, you know, the sort of the firework plants that we have in our borders, just to give us that little bit of extra pizzazz at certain times of year. Deadheading. It's one of those things that... Um, We can almost forget about it almost seems too easy and and we look for the more sophisticated ways. But actually stopping a plant thinking that its job is done is really positive. Because if you let something like a a cosmos go to seed, as far as the cosmos is concerned, it's flowered, it's reproduced itself. So it's done. So it can then rest and not produce many more flowers. Whereas if you keep deadheading it, you're saying to that cosmos, you're not done yet. Keep flowering, keep going, and it, and it does, and it, then we'll flower until it feels that it's it's all done, and then that tends to be towards the end of the summer. So, a weekly sort of deadheading with a cup of tea or a gin and tonic round the garden <laughs> is an incredibly positive thing it seems obvious but it makes a huge huge difference particularly with those high performing annuals that we use
0: gosh I mean sweet peas come to mind for me and it's a good reason to keep picking them right
1: <laughs> yeah absolutely and then it's sort of catching things um, before they go over sometimes so with things like sweet peas and dahlias I tend to get into a process of live heading so rather than wait for something to go over you're actually cutting it as a cut flower for the house which also encourages more flowers. So with something like a daily, you've got this perpetual freshness because you never let the flowers get beyond a certain point um, because you're harvesting them for the house. So between deadheading and liveheading, they're they're really positive things to do.
0: Do you think there is an issue once flowers do start going over, they do go into a different mode, you know, sort of in terms of what the plant's thinking? So Yeah, definitely first seeds it's it's a little bit downhill from there
1: yeah it's it can be very tricky once particularly an annual that's here for a sort of a good time and not a long time in a lot of cases that it feels like it's it's done if it's full of seed then it will start to shut down and what we want to do is keep the the emphasis of that plant on vigor and flower rather than setting seed and starting to to slow down
0: and are you a, a pincher or a snipper any tips for you know, deadheading in a, in a way that looks attractive as well, I
1: suppose. I'm a big fan of snips. So they're mm-hmm. sort of the um, cross between scissors and secateurs and, and they work really well. They're sort of spring loaded and they're very lightweight and easy to, to move around. And quite often when you're deadheading, we're not talking about great big stems that need to be cut they're often very thin stems so it's easier on your hands or or scissors can be very very effective as well sometimes secateurs can be quite heavy-handed for some of the the sort of lighter annuals so yeah i would say snips are uh, a good tool to have
0: super and your favorite annuals in the summer garden
1: I do love a cosmos. I'm starting to get into antirrhinums now, particularly the sort mm-hmm. of taller uh, florist antirrhinums. I think are stunning and given. Can I a- say
0: snapdragons for those of, our, th- those of us who are thinking, you know, with your fingers that you can make them talk, can't you? I always think of antirrhinums as snapdragons. Yeah, no, that's the proper name, isn't it? That's, that's <laughs> it, yeah,
1: the, the posh name. You know, with my professional <laughs> hat on, yeah. Um, the snapdragons. Uh, they're they're really exciting, and I think. I just love experimenting with annuals I think they're such a generous group of plants Um, I'm really keen on amaranthus as well love lies bleeding Uh I think they've got a huge amount to offer particularly later on in the year Um, zinnias is another group that I'm playing with this year again for that latter performance when the rest of the the garden starts to exhale zinnias really start to come into their own so yes and really some really lovely annuals and we shouldn't be sort of too dismissive of annuals because they've got a huge amount to offer. And quite often when it gets to the the end of the the summer or we've got people around for barbecues or we're entertaining in the garden, you know, we often think or could do with a bit more colour. Why haven't I got that kind of colour at a time in, in the garden when I really want to share it and enjoy it? And actually by deadheading those annuals, it keeps them going into that time of year when we're really in our gardens at the most, I suppose.
0: I suppose... A concern I have with annuals, and maybe this is a misplaced concern, um, is sort of sustainability. Sometimes when we think about perennials over annuals, what, what do you feel about
1: that? You've always got to be very conscious about how we're gardening and the kind of impact that that has. But if you're growing in peat-free compost in an unheated greenhouse um, and you're pricking out and, and growing them on, I don't think there's a huge Amount. Nothing I don't think is a silver bullet in gardening in terms of sustainability. There's always a price to pay. And I think with annuals, potentially the price might be the amount of water that they need. But um, one of the big things that I've been getting into over the last couple of years is the use of grey water. So how many of us sort of wash up and then just throw the, the water down the sink? That water could be used to water containers to go and splash a bit of water on your marvellous snapdragons that you're growing in your garden. So we can be a little bit more water-wise and, and I think there's room for everything. I think sometimes in, in gardening, we, we're very good at telling people what not to do.
0: Yep, yep, yep.
1: But, you know, if you're gardening in a sensitive way, there's nothing wrong with having some pride in your lawn. There's nothing wrong with having containers and, and growing annuals. As long as you are very conscious of how you're gardening, I think um, it can still be done very sensitively in terms of the environment.
0: And I think growing from seed is one way around it, isn't it? You know, you're, you're taking out potential air miles or travelling of materials and you know that something's peat-free. Would you agree?
1: I hate to tell you how many years I've been growing seed for, but I can't get over the excitement every year of seeing seeds germinating that you've sown. It's my favourite time of year. I love walking into the greenhouse every morning and seeing what's grown and that buzz that you get from nurturing something. Again, in terms of people gardening and having a go at things, you know, feel the buzz. It's, it's a wonderful, wonderful part of gardening to actually see those seeds germinate and nurture something along. It's, it's a real gift.
0: I'm imagining you with a GoPro in the greenhouse capturing the slow motion and speeding it up.
1: Yeah, I have to be careful and just sort of realise if I'm on my own, I can react how I like. But if there's other people with me, I've got to sort of dial it down a bit. But it's, um, it, yeah, it's a perpetual excitement, really. It's, it's, it's a really great thing to do. So I'd encourage a lot of people to grow as much from seed as they can.
0: Super. And on grey water, any tips for using grey water from the kitchen? You know, I think people might be hesitant. It might feel a bit yucky. What, how do you get around any problems with that?
1: Yeah, I think in terms of the the detergents that you use, if you're using sort of the, the more kinder sort of environmentally friendly detergents, that, that's not a problem. If you think about um, bath water, even some of the, the bubble baths that we use, they're so diluted within that situation that that's perfectly OK as well. I think in terms of food waste you might maybe want to run the water through a, a sieve or something just to make sure that you're not putting any sort of food waste on the on the bed, but but again even if you've got a little bit of washing up liquid within the water or any kind of soap from from a shower or a bath, the benefits of reusing that grey water and quite often these plants are going to be big enough and tough enough to put up with it far outweigh letting that water go down the sink and not getting that pleasure from from growing things outside because of, of um, the concerns about water use.
0: Brilliant. Thank you. And um, we're in our garden. We've deadheaded. We're walking around with our gin and tonic. I love this. And a snips, um, or if you're lazy like me, just pinching things off with your finger and putting them in a little basket somewhere. What else can we do to keep our annuals, our perennials blooming their socks off? Any other tips?
1: Mulching. I think in terms of organic matter, I produce a lot of compost here and I think a lot of local authorities produce some really good green waste compost which is perfect for a mulch and if you mulch in say end of February that really works in terms of locking the winter moisture in you know you can split gardeners down the middle some that like to mulch in the autumn some that like to mulch in the spring I'm a bit of a a spring person because I think that it locks in the winter moisture and particularly gardening on very sort of sandy and chalky soils moisture is a real concern for me and locking as much in as I can so a 5, 10 centimetre layer of well-rotted compost or manure not only traps the moisture in, it suppresses the weeds. No, Not many people enjoy weeding, so that, that helps in terms of keeping the garden looking good too. Um, but there's also this trickle feed approach. So if you've got that organic matter on the top, all the worms then take that organic matter down to where the roots are. So you're sort of drip feeding this wonderful organic matter into your soil and improving all the biology and the health of the soil too. So so yeah, if you can mulch at the end of the winter, beginning of the spring, I think that's a huge step in the right direction in terms of making your plants happy.
0: Right. So I've got my mulch. Either I've made it, I've got it from um council in, in about eight tons, I think they usually provide it. <laughs> or, but you know, you can share it with an allotment or gardening group, can't you? Yes. Or you can buy it. Can you buy mulch? You know, would you buy Bagged mulch.
1: You can buy um, bagged manure. You might even have a local stable near you that will, will let you go and collect your manure from there. The idea is that it's reasonably well rotted. Um, so part of that rotting process, if you like, sometimes these materials can absorb nutrients from the soil while they're rotting down. So if you've allowed that rotting process to have taken place in the main, then it's all good because it all it's all positive for the soil rather than taking anything way but um yeah you can certainly get bagged i think you can also get it delivered in these sort of builder sacks as well
0: super yes and we say mulch and i think it sounds a little bit like a punch bowl you know <laughs> there's different things in it isn't there so you might just have your garden compost or it might just be well rotted manure or it could be both couldn't it i think that's probably important to define what we mean when we say mulch a little
1: bit a composted bark is another it's a slightly cleaner product that people can use it tends to be a bit more expensive but it's anything organic any sort of thing which, which will break down and add to the biology and the fertility of the soil so um yeah lots of different options available for people
0: my next problem right say i've forgotten to mulch in autumn i've forgotten to mulch in spring is there any mulching i can do in summer or is it worth waiting for autumn what's your advice on that
1: You can. I think the thing to avoid is dry soil, locking in that dryness. So if you wait for a a nice thunderstorm when the ground is saturated, then get out there and mulch on top of that saturated ground. What you don't want to do is be mulching dry soil because then you're sort of almost locking out the potential for water. Um, So always make sure that it's reasonably weed free and moist before you put your mulch down
0: brilliant that's a lovely tip so that's what i'm just thinking in my head is clearing the area around not getting your mulch too close to your stem of woody material or you know you want to avoid rotting don't you gosh sorry i sound like a textbook now but (laughs) yeah you're right reminding myself
1: (laughs) yeah if you've got that whole you're saying how exciting the if i'm saying to you that it's exciting that rotting process and and that biological activity you don't want that rotting process up against (laughs) woody stems because it's only going to rot the stems which um yeah you won't be very happy with
0: what sort of gap do you leave say on a standard rose how much distance do you leave from the start of your mulch and the the base of the stem
1: not too much really just enough that there's enough airspace around the um, the base of the stem and the start of the mulch so probably the size of like a saucer I suppose around the base, just so you're making sure that you're not mounding soil up against those woody stems and that bark in particular
0: and if you are mulching would you not bother feeding or you do one or the other or you do both are you a big feeder in summer
1: I am a big feeder. You can't see (laughs) that I'm a big feeder. I don't mean you, Tom. I'm I'm breathing in. I'm breathing in. But but it's something that I've become really tuned into is is that kind of feeding to try and get those those great results. And I think where we are using peat-free compost now, which I think is very, very positive and, and, and the right thing to be doing, we're having to supplementary feed a little bit more to get the kind of good results that that we sometimes want. So I'm a big fan of seaweed feed. So I will use that a lot in my containers, particularly at the start of the season, just to sort of get a nice, healthy, buoyant plant going. And then when we start to talk about flowers and fruit, then I will switch to tomato feed. And I'm often feeding sort of once a week. Um, so if you've got your watering can, just to put a cap full of the seaweed feed or a spoonful of the tomato feed in there, we'll pep your plants up no end. And and they do require a lot, particularly these high performing plants, whether they're flowering or fruiting, they need our help. And and that kind of taps into the whole idea of a gardener being there to nurture plants. So I love <laughs> love the idea of the sort of putting a plant in the ground and it's saying, let it get on with it. And I think there are plants that do that. And there is a place for that. But one of the joys of gardening is to, to nurture things, to care for things and actually sort of giving them a little bit of liquid feed once a week i am um, quite often get the guys at west dean to talk about feeding fridays because we've often got a a gardener that comes in on a weekend so we've just got one gardener in and often say right if everything's really well fed and watered on a friday at least they've got two-thirds of the weekend where they're getting through where they haven't got to water anything again so we we do tend to do this feeding friday once a week which also nudges us to make sure that everything is getting supplemented in the way that it should so yeah feed away and comfrey and nettle teas are great as well so people can make their own so it doesn't need to cost a bomb the only thing is um some of those comfrey and nettle teas they want to be put down the end of the garden because they stink
0: (laughs) No, well, absolutely. I, I like the idea of the tomato feed, because that's really easy. Because obviously that makes bigger fruits, but that's good for the flowers as well, isn't it? You, you can use that on non-tomatoes, and that's quite cheap and easy to get hold of, isn't it?
1: Certainly. And with a lot of these fertilisers, it's not one thing. They have a little bit of all the nutrition in there as well. So there will be some nitrogen for the leaves as well. It's just the emphasis, particularly with tomato feed, is on the potash, more for fruit and flower. But you will be getting a little bit of lots of other nutrients as well.
0: Super. So I'm having a party because it's the middle of Summer In the garden, I've got my bunting out. I've got my picnic.
1: What's the date? Um, what time?
0: <laughs> I'll send you an invite. The dogs, the chickens, we're all ready. <laughs> I've got empty spots in my borders. What would be your recommendation for budget-friendly, beautiful plants I can plant in to fill them up?
1: Yes, some of the those sort of late performers that um, can be quite cheap to produce. I, I love annual climbers. So with a lot of people with their borders where some of the early performing Perennials start to die down or run out of steam let's say delphiniums for example mm-hmm. if you've got them in a border and you cut them down and you've got a gap if you grow in sort of a reasonable sized bucket some annual climbers up a an obelisk name or me some,
0: your top three annual climbers we
1: will do dolly chos, which is the hyacinth bean which has got amazing luxurious purple foliage and then these lilac flowers and then these dark purple pods that follow it um Ipermia lobata or the spanish flag Really, really nice. And Rhodochiton Atrasanguineus is a, is a lovely climber to grow, um, and I often grow them every year for the gardens here. I sneak another one in morning glories as well. I me a heavenly blue is a is a super one. But if you kept them well watered and well fed as you're coming up to your party in the buckets, you can always then just almost submerge the bucket in the soil. So it makes it look as if it's part of the border. So you get this instant impact. So you can grow them in these containers on your patio or in a a part of your garden. And then if you get some gaps and you've got that special event go and then just pop these containers in the border because it makes it look like they've been part of the border forever. Um, and people also do that with canners as well.
0: Oh, marvellous. Thank you. And anything from your professional point of view, I love having a head gardener on on the podcast, anything that you anticipate going wrong in the garden in the summer? You think, gosh, okay, we need to do this now to stop that happening, maybe a month ahead or a few weeks ahead. What do you do? What, what do you worry about and how do you get around it?
1: Certainly last summer with the dry conditions i suppose you worry about how plants are going to cope with very extreme droughts particularly during the summer i also worry a little bit about strong winds and plants snapping and causing problems there so sort of a bit of staking early on and always it's quite good to go slightly overboard because you know that you're then going to you're not going to have to remedy your staking and trying to claw back staking once it's gone wrong is is almost impossible but that mulching in the spring will help a lot Um, in terms of locking in moisture.
0: Or after a thunderstorm, right? (laughs) Or after a
1: thunderstorm. Um, But make notes, middle of the summer is a really good opportunity to walk around, put your snips down, keep your gin in your hand and actually walk around and make some notes of what plants are doing particularly well, what ones aren't. And it might be that certain plants don't cope with the dry weather particularly well, don't enjoy the kind of soil that you're trying to, to make them growing. So then look at maybe replacing those the following spring and, and find these plants that are a little bit more suited to your garden. And if you walk around, not saying that I walk around my neighborhood and knows that everybody's gardens, but you can see which plants are doing well. And you can then take a variation on that. So for example, if you, your next door neighbor's got the most wonderful budlier and it looks wonderful all year, and they do very little to try and sort of um, encourage that to perform in the way it does. Have a look at budliers. Are there any particular colours that you like? Are there any particular forms that are slightly different that you can make your own? But the principle of the fact that the Budlear grows well in your street, I would then be looking to replace them with something like that.
0: Oh, that's brilliant. And that's such a timeless tip, I think, isn't it? Looking at your neighbours garden Because it, it answers a lot of technical questions about the need to even th- know what they are, doesn't it? It's telling you soil type, a lot of things. I mean, is a cheat, because that's probably going to grow... <laughs> <laughs> anywhere, yeah. but, but a, a shout out to my white budlier. That's what I've got in my garden. You nice. know, I, I think there as you say, there are different forms and colours. You don't necessarily think, oh, I'm not that keen on that plant. I see it a
1: lot. Yeah, and that's another one that will flower and flower if you keep deadheading it that will give you a tremendous period of interest through your garden. So yeah, it's another big tick for deadheading. And yeah, we can, we can get a bit sniffy about plants like buddleias, but they were popular and are popular for a very good reason.
0: <laughs> but bring back the buddleia, butterfly yeah. bush. I mean, you know, what's not yes. to love? Yeah. Apart from it maybe being overexposed. <laughs> <laughs> yes,
1: that's true.
0: Um, so I love that you've mentioned about drought. So we're talking about choosing the right plants, basically. And some of that, as you say, comes from experience, but also staking how do I make my staking not look ugly?
1: I think you want to make it as subtle as you can and try and get in there nice and early as well as the plants are starting to grow. So you'll know the plants in your garden that flop and, and drive you mad every every summer. Just get in there with some either some hazel or some birch twigs can work really well or some bamboo canes with string tied around in a sort of a little cradle around the plant and you can go up the canes and create these rings of string or even tie individual stems to the string. Green string, brown string, the jute string works really well. Don't go for a sort of bright orange string because then trying to make it subtle with bright orange string is a challenge for most people. Um, But green and brown string, you've got more chance of it blending into the plant. But Generally, with staking, you want to be staking things no more than sort of half or three quarters of the way up the stem because you want those flowers to then come above the foliage and sort of wave around in the breeze quite naturally. You don't want them to look like soldiers and being completely strung up because you want that movement and sort of effortlessness about it if you can.
0: Brilliant. And now I'm going to try and cheat again. So I know, textbook, I should be waiting for autumn if I want to make changes to my garden and move things around. But say it's the middle of summer and I really want to make some big changes. Are there things I can do in order to move plants or add plants that will prevent them from failing, I suppose, and wasting my money? I'm thinking roses and things like that that I love.
1: Again, we're sort of becoming very conscious of, of how we're spending our money and spending it wisely. And establishment is a big deal. Uh, and And planting things at the right time and trying to establish them correctly does make a huge difference in the longer term so if you've got a rose that's bare rooted in the winter and you plant that there's no stress on the rose because it's got no foliage to support so it can put all of its energy into rooting and putting a really good foundation down whereas if you plant a rose in the middle of July and it's got flowers it's got foliage and you're putting it in these extreme temperatures and light levels it's going to really struggle to establish and become a great plant in the future and I think with anything that like trees and shrubs you're looking at a plant that will be good in the longer term you're playing the long game so um look at planting that can work if you are going to plant in July or August <laughs> for your party then you've yeah. got to be prepared to put a lot of water on there so you know when you finish washing up all the gin glasses after your party then go and put that washing up water on top of the, uh, the rose because it's going to need an awful lot of water, particularly for the first couple of summers. And I think sometimes we can think that a plant is established after its first summer, but actually the second summer it can be equally as needy. So we need to be prepared to keep that establishment going sometimes for the first couple of years.
0: No, absolutely. And you're right. And I think doing things properly does help with the sustainability aspect. But there might be a case where you might be thinking, right, I really do want to do this now. Or you're gifted a rose. And I I guess you're not going to be given a bare root in the middle of summer, but you'll you'll get a container, won't you?
1: You can, and and again, not trying to be one of those people that say you can't do that, you shouldn't do that. It's your garden, you know. If you want to put a rose there in July, you can do it, but it's just going to be a little bit more uphill than than if it was planted bare root. But and one of the other things is to plant a little in a depression within the soil, so you're creating a little pool of water around the base of the rose. So when you put your water on there, it puddles and then goes down rather than dissipating off into the the rest of the border. So you can sort of target your watering because for that first summer or so the roots are going to be quite localized so there's no point watering two meters down the border because the rose isn't going to benefit from it at all
0: brilliant no that's really helpful so do you believe in the chelsea chop and when is too late to do it and what is it do tell our listeners
1: the chelsea chop is a really interesting technique with some of those later flowering perennials and things like solidagos um asters rudbeckias flocks as well where around the chelsea flower show time we cut them down
0: which is about end of may isn't it
1: end of may yes yeah and then we cut them down quite hard um, and they regrow and what we're doing is is delaying the flowers by a few weeks but it causes a much more branching um, effect in terms of the flower so you get Um, More flowers and they tend to be smaller, but the plant doesn't grow to the same sort of height that it would do if you just let it run from the beginning of the the summer. So it's a lot more staggered and doesn't need so much staking and so much support. So the idea is you're growing a much more compact flower in your garden and without the need to stake so much by cutting it down. Now, in terms of whether it's a good thing or not, um, one of my previous jobs was working at Wisley gardens on the trial side of things. And we had a sedum trial where we would Chelsea chop one of the plants every year for three years. When it came to digging up the sedum, we found that the plant that we Chelsea chopped had a much weaker root system, which was quite interesting. And it made me sort of think, "Mm, this might not be such a great idea to do it every year. So I tend to, rather than Chelsea chop, I tend to do a perennial pinch. (laughs) (laughs) So my perennial pinch is rather than being too savage and cutting everything right down at Chelsea time, review your perennials, but actually you only need to take out the top sort of five or 10 centimetres and just pinch those tips. Because by pinching and having a, a lighter touch in terms of these perennials, you get a much more balanced, even, gentler breaking of the stems. So the harder you cut something down, the more the plant thinks... Oh, I've got to put a great big stem to replace what was there before. Whereas if it's a gentle pinching, it's the side shoots tend to break much more even, and you get a much better response from the plant, and you don't have that impact on the root system that you say would do with a Chelsea chop. So, yeah, perennial pinch for me over over a Chelsea chop.
0: So, just to recap for those of who <laughs> who are still with us in terms of this Chelsea chop, you are cutting back your perennials any particular flowers that respond very well to this in the garden any common plants
1: some of the very tall rudbeckias and some of the tall asters can respond really well to this phlox as well can respond well
0: so at the end of may can you do it in june when is it a bit too late to to be doing this
1: i would say probably early june would probably be the latest i just you you don't want to compromise the flowering too much so if you have missed the boat I would hold off, but then potentially a lighter pinching rather than a chopping would be more beneficial in, in early June if you did, did miss the boat.
0: And when you say pinching, you're using, I mean, this is or snip work, you know, how much are you taking off?
1: Is it snip or fingernail type sure. type stuff?
0: And how is the perennial pinch different to deadheading?
1: So you're not actually taking out uh, any spent flowers, you are pinching out the growing tips. So the, the young shoots, that's a very leafy, young buds you're taking out. Brilliant. So a lot of the the Chelsea chops that we're doing and the the treatment of these perennials at this time of year is they're not flowering at this point. So they're still very much in their leafy stage. Um, So we're not compromising.
0: So it it does probably feel quite counterintuitive cutting back all this lovely new growth that's about to provide more flowers, but it gives you a longer season is sort of the science of it, isn't it?
1: And again, prolonging that display of colour later on into the year. I mean, if you've got um, three or four rudbeckias in a clump you could chelsea chop or perennial pinch a percentage of them so you get flowers at different heights and and it's a different kind of effect that you can achieve with the whole clump i mean with things like jerusalem sage the perovskia you normally cut that down quite hard in the spring to about two or three buds but actually if you left some buds at six and some buds at eight you've got this lovely effect of flowering at different times different size flowers um so yeah you can sort of push the boundaries a little bit in terms of the rule book
0: marvellous now more quick questions what is a quick recipe a favorite of yours for a hanging basket or pot to perk up my garden
1: particularly sort of summertime you've got to think what's what's available i'm a big fan of a petunia at the moment called petunia tidal wave red velour and i think when it comes to a basket sometimes a single plant en masse can have a lot more impact than, say, a little bit of everything. So some petunias, again, it's in the same sort of category as buddlias as perhaps being not so trendy, but, you know, give them a go. They're they're popular for a reason again. Otherwise, in the summer, things like herbs. I love having herbs in hanging baskets, and you can be quite creative with times and um, even put a few um, strawberries in there as well for the future and, and actually have them cascading down. And having herbs at sort of eye height can be really nice, particularly... And when I had my um, young male cocker spaniel, having herbs on the ground wasn't such a great idea for many reasons. So actually having such things in the air worked out very well. But yeah, again, thinking about barbecues and eating out, having herbs in hanging baskets around you can be really fun.
0: And a lot of these herbs are quite Mediterranean, and so they don't mind getting a bit dry in a hanging basket. Yeah, and you're
1: right. And you can you can sort of um, water them at the beginning of the day. They are a little bit more forgiving, then say something like a busy Lizzie or a marigold that might be in a hanging basket if it gets particularly dry.
0: Brilliant, Tom. This has been so helpful. I'm very excited to take my garden to looking as good as a head gardener standard. So, uh, thank you ever so much for all your tips and knowledge and information sharing it with us today.
1: Absolutely, no worries. Now, look out for that invite. <laughs>
0: oh do
1: gin and tonics all around oh perfect ice and a slice for me
0: (laughs) thanks for listening to the bbc gardeners world magazine podcast subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts and never miss an episode if you've enjoyed this episode please tell others about it and rate us in your podcast provider app